You know, for those of you who have um, seen my daughter, you've probably heard her this morning, but those of you who have seen my daughter, um, she's, she's three years old, and she carries around a little stuffed bunny around with her. Um, she never, never wanted a dummy. Never could get her uh, to take a dummy, or but she uh, latched on to this little bunny at an early age, and uh, we always called it a lovey, uh, just you know, little little animal she would love. But um, she, if you ask her, and you feel free to ask her what the name of this bunny is, she'll tell you that it's Animal. Um, don't ask me how that started. Beth, the best that Beth and I can figure is we uh, we would say, "Hey, go get your go get your animal," you know, "Go get your stuffed animal," and she just started calling it her little animal. And so if you see her with this bunny, it gives her comfort. For those of you that know the Charlie Brown uh, comic strip, it's like Linus in his blanket. You know, she, she, uh, she, any, any new environment or a trip, she wants to have her lovey. You know, she gets upset, give me my, give me my animal. Well, the other day I, I was uh, just kind of joking around with her and I, and I took her animal and, um, and she was like, you know, Dad, I give it back. And I said, well, you know, why? You know, where, where's your animal? And she's like, well, you've got it. You've got it. And I said, well, you know, why do you want an animal? And she says, I want her I want her because I want her. And I started thinking, you know, I want her because I want her. That, that's, that's what describes our world, right? It describes the way people live today. Right? We do what we do, or they do what they do, because they want to do it. They follow their desires. They live according to the course of the world. They live like everybody else. Um, they, they base their life off of what their desires. Think about it. How many people do we know they will sacrifice everything to get what they want? And they will sacrifice their future financial health to get what they want now. Right? They'll sacrifice their marriages to gratify their lustful desires. They'll sacrifice their families to gratify what they want. Right? They, they will sacrifice everything. In fact, the word for lust really is just concentrated desire. So when you read lust in the New Testament, you're just talking about a concentrated desire. And that describes this world. We have the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And in this world, that is what people want and pursue after. They lust after wealth. They lust after prestige. They lust after power. They want recognition. And ultimately, they desire pleasure. That's the course of this world. That's what this world is after. And people in this world, and First Peter actually talks about this, it says that those in this world, they swim together in a flood of dissipation or, or wild and destructive ways. You see, as Paul says in Ephesians, and what we were, is the world is dead in its trespasses and sins. But yet, for the believer, we're made alive in Christ. He, set, he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His blood Son. That's Colossians 1. So, for the believer, we are not to live like the world around us. Well, how are we to live? And that's what we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the walk of the believer, the worthy walk. And now, one of the things for Paul with these believers, Paul has known the Ephesian church for many years. He spent two years in there. Acts actually says that when he was leaving, the, the elders saw him down to the port, and there was much tears. 
Now, he'd spent time. He'd, he'd suffered with them. He had taught them, mentored them, prayed for them. And now Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's writing to these believers to, to help them to, to grow in their Christian walk. He spends the first three chapters of Ephesians dealing with the calling of the church. Uh, Alex, brother, this morning read Ephesians chapter 1. He talked about what the Father did individually. Right? Individually to, to call us, to adopt us. The Son's sacrifice, His redemption through His blood. We have forgiveness of sins. And, and then the Spirit's sealing. We have the different persons of the Trinity involved in our very salvation. And then in chapter 2, He talks about what we were and how we were dead in our trespasses individually, but how He saved us and He brought us together, not only as individuals, but He brought us together into a new community called the church. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the mystery of that church and how the Holy Spirit empowers us to live. That God doesn't leave us, leave us on our own and doesn't want us just to modify our behavior, but He empowers us through His Spirit to live out Christ's likeness. And then he brings us to chapter 4. And in chapter 4 begins a new section of Ephesians where he talks about the way we should live. And that's the thing for Christians. That, that's the crucible. Right? What we believe should always translate into how we act. Right? If, what, what, if we say we believe something and we don't act on it, what does that make us? Hypocrites. Right? And if we, if we live a certain way without any theological foundation, what does that make us? Just a community club. Right? We get together and we can, we can love each other, have a good time, but we don't have any basis of belief. But So Paul combines the two. He says... Here's what you should believe in chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesians about yourself, your condition before the Lord, what God has done, your condition as a group of people now gathered together in one body. And now that you know that, you should live a certain way. So let's go ahead and look at the text this morning. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you or y'all, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in light of what God has done for these believers with their new position and their new fellowship, Paul calls these believers to walk worthy of their calling. Now believers, you are called, we are called to walk worthy of our calling that we have been called. So, if I get up, my back, there we go, there we go. So in this first picture, we, we get a picture here and I, I've got a... Uh, Something up here, and we'll talk about it in just a second. Um, there's three sections, by the way, and just so we're all clear. There's three sections in this passage. The first section is Paul's appeal to a worthy walk in verse 1. So because it's an appeal to a worthy walk. The second section is the aspects of a worthy walk in verses 2 and 3. And then the third section is the anchor of a worthy walk in verses 4 through 6. So I alliterated it for you to help you remember it. So you have the appeal, the aspects, and the anchor of a worthy walk. So believers, Paul starts out this section when he says, 
He says, I urge you, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's interesting that Paul gives himself as an example. When he calls them to walk worthy of their calling, he basically gives himself. He says, look, I'm a prisoner. And he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. Because Paul understands his circumstances are brought on by the sovereignty of God. And he uses himself, in fact, in the Greek, it's, he emphasizes I, he says, therefore I am a prisoner. Right? His example is what he's calling them to imitate. He definitely has a worthy walk because he's in prison for his proclamation of the gospel. So Paul calls us, he challenges us, he urges us, he implores us. All these are the same word here. In fact, you can even go so far as he begs them, begs us to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. When my daughter, uh, this was uh, how many weeks ago? This was about three or four weeks ago, right before we moved. So I guess that would be about a month ago. My daughter decided she wanted to stick something in an electric socket. You know, she's three years old, and uh, she found one that didn't have a cover, and she's, she's trying to stick it in there, and Arden comes and goes, Dada, Dada, and I was like, what? She's like, Arden, come here quick, you know, look at, look at, look at Addie. So I run in there, I'm like, no, 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 you grab her. What are you doing? And, uh, and you better believe I didn't just implore her. I exhorted her. I urged her, Addie, do not do this. It is dangerous. It's electricity. It will hurt you, Right? That's the attitude Paul here is imploring them. He's urging them strongly. Like, take what you've learned and live on it. Now, when you, when you think about a walk worthy, um, the walk in Scripture is always our conduct of life. The great thing about Ephesians, and a lot of Paul's writing, Paul loves the word walk. He uses it over and over and over. But Ephesians, there's five walks in a stand. Right? You, you walk worthy of your calling, you walk in love, walk in light, walk knowledge of the Gentiles, walk uh, as wise men, and then you stand firm. Oh, and you walk in love. And you walk, and then you stand firm. So there's five walks in a stand. And that's how this section, this, this rest of the book of Ephesians all breaks up. Paul's telling these believers and us how we should live. Okay? Now, the reason I, I had this picture, this is actually a first century balance scales. Right? I dug it up in Greece. This is very interesting. I haven't seen it personally. It would be nice to see. It's a picture I got off the internet. So walk worthy of your calling. The idea for walk worthy, the, the word for worthy is you give equal weight to. So it, it, in the Greek, it's a picture of you're bringing up the scales. Right? So on one side, you have, you have your calling. You have what God has done. Each member of the Trinity has been involved in your salvation. Right? You have what he's done to bring us together as a corporate body. Right? He's empowered you through the Holy Spirit to live obediently on one side, and then the other side, what? Should be your life. Should bring up the scales. And that's Paul's picture here when he says, walk worthy of your calling. Your, your life should give equal weight to what God has done for you. And so, what a powerful picture. He actually uses this same picture again in Colossians. So, to walk worthy of our calling. What motivation, what more motivation can we have to live our lives than what God has done for us? Whenever you forget, and we, we, we did this reminder, whenever you forget what God has done, read Ephesians 2 when, when Paul says, 
You were dead in your trespasses. You were spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, made us alive together in Christ. Right? So we're to live a life walking worthy of our calling. Now, brethren, it's interesting when you think about the word for church. In Greek, it's ekklesia. Literally, the word ekklesia means the called out ones. That's who we are. We've been called out of this world, this filth, the domain of darkness, into God's kingdom, and we're called to live obediently for Him. You know, my grandfather used to have a pair of these scales in his house. And we used to, as kids, we'd go in there, we'd run in there. He had on a, a little bureau right, uh, right near the dining table. And we'd walk over there. And, it, and his was a lot more elaborate than this. And it had like the, the, was it the goddess of justice. And it was like she was weighing the scales. I don't know where he got it. And uh, it's, uh, it's long gone now. No, no way to ask him as, as my grandfather's been gone home to be with the Lord. But he would, uh, we would go in there and we would play with that. We'd, we'd weigh toy cars and fruit and animals and whatever else we could find. You know, does it, does it equal out? And we'd see what everything would balance out and see what it would weigh and if it would equal. Well, brethren, our lives should equal what God has done in our lives. You know, we should live in such a way that when we are uh, exhibited to the world, in other words, when, when we live our lives, they should say they are different. Right? And just real quickly, and just to remind you, you've been predestined, you've been chosen, you've been called, you've been adopted as heirs, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been given wisdom to understand spiritual matters, you've been sealed, you've been, you have a promise of an inheritance together with Christ, and you've been joined with the body of believers in a new community, and you're empowered with the Holy Spirit. Wow. What, what great blessed promises that we have. So we are to walk worthy, and that's Paul's appeal. Okay? And then he gives the aspects of a worthy walk. So what, is a, what does a worthy walk look like? I mean, you think about it, okay, we're, we're to walk worthy. So, so he says, look, he says, with all humility and gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is, this is what a worthy walk looks like. Now keep in mind as we go through each one of these that, that as the first one we're going to talk about is humility. And humility lays the foundation for the rest. Right? You can't have, as we get to in a second, you can't have unity without humility. So humility is the, is the, is the foundation, it's the base. And you can picture a, like, a, like a pyramid. And it, and it goes up and up until finally we get to unity. But they're all built on humility. So that's, that's laying it out for you. So humility defined as a proper estimation of oneself and a proper estimation of God. So when you are tempted to be prideful, the remedy for that and the opposite of that is humility. It's understanding where you came from, so who you are, where you were, and who you are now, and what God has done for you. It's really simple, Right? How, how can we be prideful when we know that, as the song just said, and it was a quote of, uh, quote of Jeremiah 9 and 1 Corinthians, that who, what can we boast? Right? can't boast in anything. See, we, we can't boast in what we've done. can't boast in the things we have. Right? Paul says in Corinthians, what do you have that you have not been given? Right? 
1 Corinthians, he also talks about, he says, I will not boast in anything but Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 9, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let he who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. You see, humility is understanding who we are and who God is. One of the passages I love, um, I, I, love to, I love to read it, and uh, it's one of those passages you, you can kind of use to stump people from time to time if they haven't really thought about it or they haven't noticed it before. But in uh, Numbers 11, Numbers 11, um, uh, sorry, Numbers 12, Numbers 12, 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now Moses wrote that, right? <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't added in later. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And so when you think about numbers and you think about Moses was the very epitome of humble. He was the most humblest man of all. How could he write that and still be humble? Right? That's one of those things you can use to, you can use to kind of stump people. Well, the answer is very simple. The answer is found in Acts 7, in Stephen's sermon to the Pharisees right before they, they stoned him. In Acts 7, Stephen actually says in verse 22, give me a second, I turn there myself, says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in word and deeds. But he was approaching the age of 40, entered in his mind to visit the brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptians. And listen to this. For he supposed, or he reasoned, that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance or salvation through him, but they did not understand. You see, Moses spent 40 years as a prince of Egypt learning that he was something. And he thought because of his, he knew he was a Hebrew, right? And he knew that, well, God had destined him for something, and in his mind, he reasoned it. You know, I'm a prince of Egypt. It must be that I'm going to deliver Israel, right? God is, and he knew of the promises in the, uh, that he'd made to Abraham, God's covenant in the promised land. So he reasoned, well, I'm going to be the deliverer. I'm going to be the salvation of Israel with my position. And we're going to lead a political uprising. We're going to overthrow Pharaoh and let's go. Woo! Well, we all know what happened, right? They, they laughed at him called him out, and then Pharaoh decided he was going to execute judgment. And Moses fled into the wilderness, and, it, and for 40 years, God taught him that he was nothing. Right? And when Moses was ready, God used him. And God made it plain that it wasn't Moses that delivered Israel, but it was God Almighty. So Moses knew, now this is Moses writing when he's in the wilderness with the stubborn generation of Israelites. He's walking around and he writes this and he knows that he's nothing. He's nothing without God. He's nothing. He was born as an Israelite, educated as a prince, and then spent 40 years as a shepherd, learning that nothing he did mattered. It was all about God and what God was going to do. Hudson Taylor famous missionary to China, was visiting a, a church, a Presbyterian church in Melbourne many years ago, and um, the, the 
person who was announcing his arrival and introducing him to the congregation went on and on about Hudson Taylor's works and what he was doing in China and the, the blessing that God was doing. And he, and he got up and he said, I want to, I want to welcome Hudson Taylor, uh, I want to welcome, excuse me, the illustrious Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor walked up to the podium and was quiet for a second. And then he said, no, I, I'm a little servant of an illustrious master. See, that, that's humility. It, it's the truth of where we are, who we are, and who God is. By the way, truth is reality as God sees it. This is a side note. So when you think about truth, it, it's reality. So when you say, what's the truth about our condition? Well, the truth is we were nothing, and it wasn't for God saving us. We'd still be nothing. We'd still be dead in our trespasses. So humility is that, that base foundation that governs every other um, aspect here. Every other way that we demonstrate our walk, humility is that basis. And then he gets down and he says, he says, all right, well, let's look at gentleness. Okay? So he says humility, gentleness. Gentleness is emotions under control. It's not weakness. Another way, a word for gentleness is meekness. In our culture, we kind of have this idea of gentleness and meekness, and that person's weak. That's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea is strength under control. Jesus himself was meek, and I'm sure every one of you would not say that he was weak. right? He was meek. He controlled that power. And so gentleness is an attitude that submits to God's dealings without rebellion, but it also submits to unkindness without retaliation. It's ability to waive one's rights for the sake of the gospel and you're willing to suffer loss no matter what the cost. It's kind of that, for those of you that love the ocean, it's kind of that point where it's not a flat calm sea and it's not a raging storm, but it's kind of a middle ground. You have that potential of a storm, but everything's still under control. Right? This word fo- follows closely with that humility we talked about for it. It builds upon it. Because what Paul is talking about here, and this is the thing to remember, whether it's the humility as the base and now the gentleness, is he's talking about our lives corporately. That's when he says, I implore you, I urge you, you plural, or in the south we'd say that's y'all, order, we, he, he's urging all of y'all, and just as he's talking to the Ephesians, all of us, to walk worthy of our calling by, by practicing humility towards one another, a gentleness towards one another. We want to protect this body, protect us from division. And ultimately, that's what Paul's going to be talking about here in a second. But protect us from division. Show humility. Show gentleness towards one another. Right? It's the opposite of rudeness and abrasiveness. We're dying to self. We're willing to suffer abuse, insult, or injury because we love each other. It's not a hypocritical concern for others, right? That, that's kind of a, I only, I'm only concerned because of what I can get from others. It's not, not a, just a concern, right? It, it's a, it's a, a real consideration for others motiv- by, motivated by love for them. We, we control our energy, we control our emotions in the midst of hard circumstances, and we don't allow the pressures from the outside world to influence how we treat other people. Right? I, I, I'm guilty of that at times. Right? I've had a rough day. I'm not gentle with my wife. I'm not gentle with my kids. Right? I'm irritable or rude, and I have to ask wife, wife's forgiveness. 
Honey, I, I've had a rough day. I've had a, it's been a stressful day. To allow the circumstances of this world, the hard circumstances to, to, to influence me and not being gentle. Fathers, when we're, we're dealing with our kids and our children, we have to remember, and mothers as well, we have to remember that we want to be gentle with them. Right? It doesn't mean we're, we're wishy-washy milk toasts. Right? We still take a firm stand on the truth, but we also are gentle with them, we're kind. We help them to understand that we love them, we care about them. It's not all, there's not a harshness to our tone. Brethren, that's how we should treat each other. Right? With humility, with gentleness, a concern, with kindly expressions and soft words, but we still hold our firm standard where we exhibit our love for each other. So you have humility and you have gentleness, and then you have patience with long-suffering. Or patience, excuse me, or long-suffering. The word is the same. I love the word, this is the, kind of the King James word, long-suffer. Because it kind of gives you that visual picture. And now remember, he's talking about with people. And he's talking about people in the church. Right? We, we long-suffer. We, uh, we deal with them. The, the, the best picture I like of this, of long-suffering, is my, my landlord, my neighbor, before I moved out here, um, she has an Australian sheepdog. Uh, she had, she's had it for many years. Well, recently she had like four different dogs and one of them passed, one of them died, and, and she got another one. She got a little puppy Australian sheepdog. And it was interesting seeing the reaction among the puppy and the adult. You know, the, the adult sheepdog just kind of sits there or lays there and the puppy's jumping on her and nipping her and playing with her and barking her and, and crawling all over and the, the adult sheepdog just kind of sits there and brushes, brushes the puppy off at times but just, just bears it with tremendous, what? Tremendous patience. That's the picture of us as believers. You know, there's going to be people in our lives, that, in the church, that are going to irritate us. They're going to annoy us. But we long suffer with that person. Right? It's patience with people. It's a spirit that refuses to retaliate when we've been wronged. And maybe that wrong is, is a sin of omission. Right? Often we think about wrongs. You think, well, they did this to me. Maybe it's just something they didn't do. Right? They forgot an appointment. They promised to help you and they didn't follow through. Right? It's an understanding that we're all on a different path in our growth and our walks with the Lord. So we're, we're long-suffering. Um, it was interesting, as I was looking for examples to try to describe that, Strabo, a Greek philosopher, he spoke of a city under siege. Right? They've been surrounded. And he said that the citizens of the city, they planted turnips with the hope that they would be able to eat their produce before the city fell. That's the idea of long-suffering. See, we, we suffer with people, right? Knowing that the hope is that they're growing and maturing. Now, I, I praise the Lord wow, of the, the men in my church who long-suffered with me when I was a new believer. You know, you're a new believer, you think you know it all, right? You think you know it all, you, you think you have it all switched on, and, and uh, those brothers, they come alongside, and, son, let me, let me talk to you for a minute. Or the fact that sometimes I didn't even say anything. And you know, they went home and prayed for me. You know, looking back, the things I said and the things I did. You know, we have to remember when we were new believers. For those of us that have walked with the Lord for a while, we have to remember that not everyone is where we are. Not everyone has been through the same trials. It's interesting in Romans, 
Um, Romans talks about um, trials produce perseverance. Trials produce patience. So be careful if you pray for patience. God send you a trial. Right? But for us that are that are older and walk with the Lord for a while, we've been through trials in our life, and God has produced that patience. So we we're to show the humility. We're to we're to demonstrate the gentleness to each other. We're to, to long suffer. We're to to be restrained in the midst of hard people. But we're also to put up with one another in love. I love this idea here. He says he says we're to tolerate each other. There's going to be times when in the community of of believers where uh, it's not just where we're suffering with people's immaturity, but where we're showing patience, we're tolerating their quirks, right? I mean, we tolerate Josh all the time, you know. We we, we tolerate, and then and you know what? He he tolerates us, right? He tolerates our quirks. So we uh, it's it's more it's more than just. We, the, the patience and long-suffering of people's immaturity from the previous category, but it goes even farther. He said we're putting up with people. We're, we're spirit-empowered to tolerate those in the church. Why well, we come from different backgrounds, right? We come from different places. Right? You know, I'm, I'm learning you guys, and you're learning me. I come from a different country. Right? Many of you are not originally from South Australia. We, we put up with each other. Because we love each other. We care about each other. We're willing to overlook those things. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's First Peter. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about those things that people do to you that, that, that they're not open, rebellious, defiant acts against God, but they're irritable. Right? Maybe they say an unkind word. Maybe they forget to do something. Maybe they're just quirky. Right? We're all on a different path in our walk with the Lord. Right? We're all trying to work, hopefully, trying to work worthy of our calling, but we're all growing in our maturity. And we're not all in the same spot. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for us. Can you imagine if we all knew the same thing? If we're all at the same spot? Who would you go to ask advice to? I don't know. I'm not there yet. How should I raise my kids? I don't know. My kids are the same age as your kids. Right? How should I deal with this person at work? I don't know. I haven't worked with them yet. Yeah. We're all in different levels, different, different places in our walk. But praise the Lord that as a community of believers, as, as Steve is, I don't know if he coined the term, but I, I'm going to use it, it's our forever family. Right? My, my family is on the other, literally the other side of the world. This is, this is my family. This is your family. Right? We care about you there, each other. We, we put up with each other. You know, I had a friend in seminary that he, um, he always wanted to compare everything. He was not from the United States, but he always wanted to compare everything in the States to where he'd grown up. And nothing was good enough. Oh, we do this here. It's better here. It's better here. It's better here. Well, he was, he was just turning off people. Nobody wants to see their, the place they live just continually downgraded. But, you know, God worked in his life. He took some men in the church, kind of came alongside him and said, Brother, it's not better or worse. It's different. And you have to learn that. Right? And that's what it is for us as believers. We're not better. We're not worse. Talking about personality-wise, we're different. And so we love each other. We put up with each other. Right? You see how this, this helps protect the body? Right? It protects, as we're ultimately going to protect the unity. This protects us. 
We should be different than the world. And if we're exhibiting these characteristics, this is not like people in the world who are only self-centered, right? Or only focused on what they can get out of people, how they can use people, who don't care if they're grumpy, irritable, they only look after themselves. Don't care what I heard, you know, hear people say, I don't care what people think about me. I'm this way. That's that's how the world looks at relationships. We're different. We put up with our spouse. Honestly, for those of you that are that are married, marriage is a sanctifying thing, right? You, you, you think you're all right until you get married and you realize, wow, you know, I'm pretty selfish. And your wife and your husband will let you know that. And they should, right? We don't realize how selfish we are. And then we have kids, and then we start realizing, oh, my Lord, my son's imitating me. Where did he learn that? Oh, how sanctifying is that? Or how sanctifying is it to tell your son, if you would only obey, I would bless you in so many ways. I said that to my son not too long ago. Holy Spirit just goes, "Uh uh-huh, little dinging, little bells in your mind. Uh, If you would only obey, you know, those words. Or you tell my son, Arden, I don't have to tell you every little detail of what I've got store for you for today. I just need you to obey at this moment. I said that to my son, getting him in the car one time, right? God goes, "Uh uh-huh, if you would only obey in the moment, you don't have to know the whole path I had laid out for you. You see... We, we tolerate our spouse, we, we, we love our spouse, and we do it always in love. Notice that the love is the motivation. We're, we're showing tolerance, we're showing patience for one another in love. You can't do this, brethren, in your own strength. Love the Holy Spirit, right? You're not going to put up with each other. You're not going to show patience with each other. You're not going to be humble. Right? You're not going to be gentle if the Holy Spirit's not empowering you. And you're not going to do it if you don't love each other. Now, biblical love is not phileo. Phileo is, is uh, Philadelphia city of brotherly love. Phileo is a kind of a brotherly love. It's a, it's a love where you get something in return, kind of goes back and forth. We're friends, we're hanging out. You get, you know, we get, a, get companionship. You know, we, we kind of do stuff together. That's phileo. Um, but then you get agape love, which is it's a commitment empowered by the Holy Spirit to act in a self-sacrificial way towards others regardless of personal feelings. I like that for a long definition. Right? So it's a commitment. So it's, there's will involved. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not natural. It's supernatural. We act self-sacrificially. We die to self. We think of others as more important than ourselves. And we do it regardless of our own personal feelings. That's agape love. Oh, you know, I don't feel like loving that person. I don't care. You love them. Oh, well, you know, they haven't done anything for me. I don't care. You love them. Because that's the kind of love that Christ embodies. God so loved the world, commitment, gave His only begotten Son, what sacrifice, right? Who shall believe shall have eternal life, right? Regardless of His personal feelings, Jesus prayed, take this, take this cross from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus epitomizes agape love. We're to imitate our Lord. Look, we understand we have faults. We understand we all are different. We, one thing I need to add really quick is we don't tolerate open willful sins. Right? We love each other. We don't tolerate blatant 
blatant defiance of God's word. Right? Paul actually, actually rebukes the Corinthians and says, why are you tolerating sin in your midst? As brothers and sisters, we come alongside. And I, I always do like this because that's the idea. It's coming alongside, put my arms around you and going, brother or sister, what are you doing? This is in defiance of God's word. As a, you're not under, going to be under judgment, but you're going to be under discipline. I had a girl in our church. I was working with the youth, and, and uh, she was a college uh, uni student, and she was a volunteer, and she was working with the, the young uh, teenage girls, and uh, she decided she wanted to start dating an unbeliever. We went to her uh, first time and, and just real gentle and said, you know, sister, what are you doing? You know this is wrong. First Corinthians 7 says, you can marry anybody you want as long as you're in the Lord. That's, that's a pretty big selection, you know, and you're choosing to go outside of that. You know that's blatantly wrong. There's no such thing as missionary dating. So we, we, we looked at her and we said, you know, what's going on? And she said, and so she made some excuses. And so we, we gave, it a, gave it a week, two weeks, came back to her and said, hey, what's going on with this? Have you broken it off? And she said, no. She, she got her heart entwined. So we, we challenged her again. And this time it was a little more direct. This time we basically told her, all right, well, here's what's going to happen. Because you're in open defiance of God's word. We've already, we've already came to you one time and, and talked to you about this. We, you're going to step down from your position because we can't trust your wisdom in meeting with these young teenagers who are, who are looking to you to provide wisdom on who to date and who to marry. We can't trust you in that. So you're stepping down from your position. And furthermore, you need to understand that as a daughter in Christ, you're going to incur the discipline of the Lord. So make sure the guy knows that who's with you that there's collateral damage with that sometimes. And sometimes God gives you over to what you want unless you have the full benefit of that defiance. And I, said, I just basically told her, I said, I said, one sin leads to another. You see, we don't tolerate sin. Now, with that, she, she remained in that relationship. Just to give you a background real quick. She remained in that relationship for another few weeks and she eventually just came to us and said, you know, I, I'm under conviction from the Lord. I just can't, I, I can't do it. You know, I want to be right. And she broke it off and praise the Lord. You know, she, um, she's in a right relationship with the Lord now. You see, we don't tolerate an open sin because that's not love, right? If we're called to holiness and we, we allow each other to live the way we want to live and we're not living worthy of our walk, then is that really love? See, we're tolerating our, our foibles and our failures and our personality quirks, but we, we also we want to help people grow in their walk with the Lord. We hold a home accountable. The great thing about home groups is that not only we get to know each other, we hold each other accountable. If you're not there, then, hey, where was, where was Ryan this week? You know, what was he doing? You know, was, he, was he just you know, skipping? You know, is he doing all right spiritually? I'm going to give him a call. Right? What, what's, what's going on? Not that he wasn't there. He was there this week. So I wasn't there. <laughs> so, uh, so we put up with one another. And then this is all building, right? Remember I told you to imagine a pyramid? It's all building up to different levels. And finally we get to the top of the pyramid, which is we, what? We are being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So one thing that's interesting about this is we aren't told to pursue unity. Right? I've heard plenty of Christians, even growing up, say, oh, we need to be unified. We need to, we need to, be, we need to pursue unity. We've got to get more unity. We're, we're already unified. Realize that? We're, the unity is produced by the Holy Spirit. 
He takes us individually, God saves us, and then He unites us together in Christ in union with Him. And when we're in union with Him, we're also in union with what? With everybody else in the one body. We're all individual members of one body, and we all have different functions. Now, the, unity doesn't mean there's diversity of gifts, and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, or three weeks when I preach this section again. But one of the things, we, we have a unity that is produced by the Spirit, right? We're told to have a, have a zeal, and we're to be eagerly guarding that unity. And we guard that unity by what? By acting humble, by acting gentle, by showing patience, by putting up with one another. You want to destroy the unity that the Holy Spirit produces? Act selfish. Irritable. Act, act prideful. Right? Act out the flesh. And you destroy the unity that the Holy Spirit pro- produces. And this is a unity that can only be produced as we are what? As we're walking with the Lord. As, as the Holy Spirit is producing that fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Those are Christ-like qualities that the Holy Spirit produces as we submit to our Lord we walk with Him. doesn't mean there's not some effort involved, but it's us working with the Lord. Right? We, we die to self. We confess our sins. Humility is produced. We're gentle. We're patient. We're putting up with each other. It's interesting the word here for preserve. It's, it's a word for watch over and guard. It's like if, if I got one of you guys to stand in the back and guard this room from anybody who might come in. We're, we're guarding that unity. We're making an effort to do whatever it takes to preserve the unity of the body. So we preserve it, the unity. We, and we do it in the bond of peace. I love this word here. The, the, it's like... If you can imagine each one of these things, humility, gentleness, they're all links in a chain, right? We're all, we're all chained together. Well, what's holding that chain together is the bond of peace, the links that hold the chain together. Or if you can imagine glue, you've got two, two things that are glued together, the bond, the glue is peace. We're, we're in a right relationship with God, so we have peace with God. We're no longer in enmity with Him, but we also have peace with each other, right? There's no Jew there's no Gentile. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2 and 3. We've been brought together. You realize there's only three types of people in this world. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and there's a church. Right? We're neither Jews. Right? Right? We're, 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 we were Gentiles, pig-eating Gentiles. Right? And then, but now, we're neither one of those. We're different. We're the church. Praise be the Lord. So, we are being intentional to preserve that unity that the Holy Spirit has given us, has granted us, that produces in us. And that brings us to the last section. So we have the, we have the appeal, we have the aspects, and we have the anchor. And this we'll go through real quick. Um, but one of the things that you have to realize, and I hear this often, even, even in the church, unfortunately, is that love edifies and doctrine divides. And in a sense, that is true. Love does edify, and doctrine does divide truth from error, right? But it doesn't, doesn't divide us, it provides, provides us a foundation. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The anchor of the worthy walk is what we believe. Like I said at the beginning, if we don't have something to anchor us together, then we're just a social club. 
Boy, we just get together and we talk about our work week and we talk about how we can network and we can talk about the kind of cars we drive and the weather and what else we want to talk about, sports teams. And there's nothing wrong with these things, right? But, but that's all we talk about, right? But as believers, we, we are not a social club. We are founded on the Word of God. We are founded on fundamental truths. And that's Paul's point here. He said there is one body. and First of all, there's one, one corporate body. We're all united together in Christ. Like I said before, there's no Jews, there's no Gentiles, there's just the church. He says there's one Spirit. Right? The Spirit illuminates and opens our mind to understand. 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit calls us to salvation. A natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. The Spirit helps us to understand those things. Right? We're, the Spirit brought us in, in union with Christ. He brought us in, in union with each other. The Spirit in Titus says the Spirit washes and regenerates us. Ephesians 3 says the Spirit empowers us. Right? It illuminates us. It illuminates our minds to understand the deeper things of Scripture. There's one hope. You know, the hope is the certainty of our calling. Colossians says that our hope is the basis for our faith and love. Right? So we have one hope. It's a living hope. We have one Lord. There's not one Lord for the Jew. There's not one Lord for the Gentile. The Ephesians in Acts, you can read over and over, they tried to shout, shout Paul down. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They believed Artemis was Lord. No, there's, there's one Lord who we have redemption, we have resolution, we have hope. He's our head. In fact, other night in home group, we were talking about 2 Peter 2, 1, and how false teachers will deny the Lord. They will deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Augustine said, Jesus Christ will be Lord of all, or He will not be Lord at all. In other words, He's going to be Lord of your life, or He's nothing. There's one Lord. There's one faith. We have saving faith. It goes beyond a mental assent. The demons believe. Do you realize this? And this is interesting thing about it. James said the demons believe and they tremble. The demons have great theology. Right? They know who God is. Exactly who He is. They know they've been in His presence. They were fallen angels. They know He's holy. They know He's powerful. They know He's created all things. They know the condition of man. Right? They can understand mentally salvation. Not experientially. There's no salvation for demons. They can understand the, the, the necessary for blood, for sacrifice. They understand the future redemption that's coming and judgment. Demons have great theology, but they will not submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. So we have one faith. It's a saving faith that goes beyond mental assent. And then it also has to do with an objective. The, this, the content of the Word of God, there's one faith that's been delivered to the saints for all time. We're not adding to it. We're not subtracting for it. From it, it is the faith that we believe in. The faith that is handed down from the apostles in a long chain that dates back thousands of years until the present time, even now. There's one faith. Then there's one baptism. One baptism is the outward sign of an inward reality. Right? We're baptized. We died with Christ. We're raised with Him. Right? The water washes away our sin, just like Christ's blood washes away our sin. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. 
I once heard, there was a guy I was in Bible college with, and he got it wrong, and, he, and we helped him to realize he got it wrong, but he believed that, he, he, he related baptism as, if you can relate this baseball term, if you don't understand, I apologize, but there's, there's different bases. You go from home, the first base, the second base, the third base, back to home, and when you get around the bases, you get, you get a run, you get a point. Well, he said, well, baptism is, is like, you know, you're, you're saved, you believe, you confess, and then, and then you, you, you're, you, you're baptized, and you join the church, and then you're saved. He actually added it into the necessary steps for salvation. Now, he was thinking, trying to think of a great illustration, analogy. We were trying to say, no, brother, it's not right. right? Baptism, it isn't baptism that saves us. Baptism is a picture, just like communion is a picture, a symbol of what Christ has done for us. So there's one baptism. In this water baptism, in this, in this baptism, we're baptized in one name, in one new community. Right? So Paul just lays these out. Just, you see him, he's just hammering them out. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then finally he says, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You know, the Jews didn't call God Father. But we can. Paul says in Ephesians 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. It's interesting in the Greek, it's proston pater. In Greek, proston is before thee. Okay? But it's a bigger picture than that. It literally means in the face of. Paul, uh, John uses this same phrase in Revelation when he says the Antichrist will, will blaspheme God, proston theon. He will blaspheme to God's face. But we can go to God's, the Father, and call Him Father, and go to God and call Him Father, and we can do it and go literally in His presence. We can address Him as Father. And he said he's overall, he's sovereign. We can address the sovereign God of all the universe as Father. And he said he's through all. It's, it's an agent of instrumentality. It's a, something is accomplished through him. God is all-powerful. He works all things according to what? The counsel of his will. Okay, Ephesians 1.11. So God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. And then he's omnipresent. He is in, he's in all. He's everywhere. Right? This is the God that we serve. Right? It's not a God of the Hindus. Right? It's not a God of the Muslims. It's not a God of people's own creation. It is the one true God that is sovereign, that is all-powerful, that is all, in all, and that we can address as Father. This is the foundation to our unity, the anchor to our unity. It's what we believe that unites us. Right? So you can't just have love without belief. And you can't just have belief without love. Right? Belief without love, we believe something, like I said earlier, and we don't act on it, then we're hypocrites. Love has to be based on something that is the last. Now, I had the pleasure of visiting Sequoia National Park multiple times. It's about three hours north from where I used to live and in the L.A. County area. These are the largest trees in the world by volume. Now, there's the redwood trees in the Pacific coast of California are a little bit taller, but these are the largest trees. And yes, that tree is that big. You can see that little guy taking a picture down at the very bottom. That tree is that big. Okay? The great thing, or the interesting thing about these trees and how massive they are is they don't have a very deep root system. 
And one of the things you need to realize is like the wind we all had the other day when it was blowing and whipping and the dust was everywhere. The, these trees only grow in one place in the world, and that's in the Sierra Mountains of California. And the wind whips up through those mountains because it comes in off the coast and whips up on the other side of the mountains. There's desert because all the water drops on these trees. But the wind just whips up. But these trees do not have a deep root system. You're thinking, well, how in the world can they stand? These things are massive. You could drive, they used to have a path and you could drive a car through them. They'd cut a hole in it. That's how big these, and not one of these Australian cars, but these big American SUVs. Sorry, I'm just a little sidetracked. You could drive a car through it, right? So the interesting thing about these trees is that they, you would always find them, you always find them in groves. And a groves is a, is a group of trees. And there's a group that grows here, a group that grows here, a group that grows here. They don't, you don't find them individually by themselves, what you can't see on the other side of there is there's a grove all around this area. So it's a huge grove that you're in. And what they do, their roots all intertwine. And what happens is when the wind blows, the roots intertwining together is what causes them to have stability. So when the storms come and the winds blow, individually they don't bear the load, but as they bear the load as a group. What a great picture of the church, right? We're all at different heights, different levels of growth, but we're all rooted together, bound together in love, bearing life's storms, bearing each other's foibles and trials and personalities. What a great picture of the church. Brethren, we've looked at today the, the appeal to a worthy walk to live a life that is worthy of your calling. Guys, we, we've talked about the aspects and what it means to demonstrate that worthy walk. And we've talked about what it is that that's anchors our worthy walk. You see, our lives are not meant to be lived alone. We're to live together in the community of believers. What a great name for a church, New Community Church. That's what we are. We're a new community. We're different than the world. And together we can persevere through the storms of life. We can persevere with each other. And we are to live a certain way, in such a way, excuse me, that the world sees our love and sees how different we are. Right? When we share the gospel with those around us, they see that our lives together are different. When unbelievers and visitors, and if you are one, you're welcome, you come in and visit us, they should be just blown away by the love that we have for one another. Praise be the God. If we love in this way, we are different from a world that is full of selfishness, full of self-lovers and self-promoters. We draw others to Christ and we demonstrate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform lives. We are evidence that the gospel has power. Brother, lo brothers and sisters, love each other and walk worthy of your calling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a, what a blessing it is to go to Your Word, to, to be challenged, to be exhorted, to walk worthy of our calling. Father, I just pray for each and every one of us here individually that we would, we would be drawn near to You. Father, that we would go to our anchor, our foundation, that we would learn who You are and what You've done. And Father, that we would fix our minds and our hearts to love each other. Father, produce in us a love that is willing to bear up into all things. Help the world see that love demonstrated 
Father, give us boldness to share the gospel. Help others to see that gospel has, your gospel has power. What a wonderful time of fellowship you've given us around your word. I pray that you would use it to strengthen our faith and draw our hearts into greater repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.